So what is that you've got there, Mike? What are you wearing? I'm wearing a t-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. You need to, you need a shirt, right? To cover your body. Nobody wants to see your bare chest. I like t-shirts. I have a couple of them. So good thing we're selling t-shirts. 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 So what you need to do is you need to go to teespring.com slash Texas podcast and you can find an amazingly cool gray shirt. It's got a picture of Sam Houston with his earbuds in listening to his favorite podcast. Come and take it. This one right here. And then on the back, it's got our cool come and take it logo. We need you to get out there, buy shirts and wear them. We wanted to make something really cool to share with you, the listener. Now, guess what? Because we love you so much. If you act right now, we're going to put a special code in. That's going to work up until May 4th. It's May 4th, 2015. And the code is Big Drunk. All one word. Big Big Drunk. Big Drunk. Which was one of the names that Sam Houston got from his Cherokee family (laughs) in his Arkansas days. So get a dollar off and get your t-shirts today. Teespring.com slash Texas podcast. And this is a limited print run of t-shirts, right? Now this is also a timely thing because we just celebrated the 179th anniversary of the Battle of San Jacinto. And we're going to talk about that and Sam Houston and his life today. So, without further ado, here's the show. Get down on the ground! Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. By the time he arrived in Texas, Sam Houston had already lived a life that would have earned him a place in the history books. A politician, soldier, and advocate for Native Americans, Houston's experience in politics had meant that he'd already rubbed shoulders with such famous Americans as Andrew Jackson, Davy Crockett, and Francis Scott Key. But the true glory and destiny of his life was waiting for him in the new land of Texas. But first, what's your favorite Texas-based reality TV show? Well, I actually have a guilty pleasure. I like Big Rich Texas, which is sort of like the Real Housewives of Dallas. Big hair Texas? Big, big, yeah, they all have big hair. Well, I'm going to say Dallas SWAT. That, uh, that, that was a good show. It was a good show. And I actually knew one of the guys that was on Dallas SWAT. He had the job of knocking those doors in and get down on the ground. Well, uh, I'm going to go with the only one of those shows that is still on the air that I actually watch when I get a chance, which is Fast and Loud. Woo! I don't even know what that show is. Fast and Loud, Gas Monkey Garage. They're based in Dallas. They fix up cars and flip them. And they have a restaurant, Gas Monkey Grill. They have Gas Monkey Grill. It's a live music venue. They Um, also have one in, uh, they have a couple in DFW Airport. Yep. I actually know a guy whose son is in a band called the Hey Hayes. And they're playing Gas Monkey Grill. So the what what's the Hey Hayes? The what what's Hey Hayes? So it's something of a budding enterprise, huh? Yeah. In many ways, he was the father of Texas. Sam Houston's role in the Texas Revolution started even before the first shot was fired. Houston was the most important figure in the Revolution, shouldering the burden of leading the Texas Army and eventually leading it to ultimate victory. His contributions didn't end there. He played a critical role in shaping and guiding the fledgling nation and leading it into the United States. Sam Houston departed for Texas in December 1832 under a cloud of controversy. Despite the fact that he was married to two different women under two different sets of laws, he was alone when he arrived in Texas. Like many of the other heroes of the Texas Revolution, Houston's marital status when he arrived was complex at best. 
He was separated from Eliza Allen, his bride briefly in Tennessee, but it would be another five years before he could get an official divorce. His common-law Cherokee wife, Tiana Rogers, simply turned down his request to go with him. But Houston would have little time for a personal life. He jumped eagerly into the storm of Texas politics almost as soon as he arrived. His official interest in the area was land speculation and negotiating with the native tribes in the name of both the Cherokee and the United States. Given his close connections with Andrew Jackson, Houston was accused, both then and later, of going there specifically to push Texas towards breaking away from Mexico. Evidence for these accusations wasn't hard to find. Oblique references in letters and writings from Houston and Jackson placed things well within the realm of possibility. He was already an elected official by the Convention of 1833 and served as the representative for Nacogdoches. He found himself on the more radical end of the spectrum of people, plotting the course of Texas. He aligned with the War Party and supported their push for independence from Mexico. He also attended the Consultation of 1835 and quickly offered his services to the provisional government that formed after fighting broke out in October of 1836. Perhaps because of his warlike position, or because of his obvious experience and skill as a soldier, he was commissioned as a general for the military district east of the Trinity in November 1835. In the confused military situation of the first months of the war, Houston soon became commander of the regular army. Unfortunately, most of the army were volunteers, who were serving initially under Stephen Austin and later Edward Burleson. To make things easier on everyone, after the capture of Bayar, the factions of the government also offered independent commands to at least three other officers, including James Fannin, to invade Mexico. Houston tried to make sense of things, but didn't get much obedience from anyone. Instead, he focused on areas where he could be of use. Once more, Houston's close relationship with the Cherokee was put to good use, and he negotiated a peace settlement with those living in East Texas in February of 1836 to assure them that they would be treated fairly if Texas gained its independence. In March, at the convention at Washington on the Brazos to declare Texas independence, Houston was finally confirmed as the sole commander-in-chief of the army. Unfortunately, at this point, he was a commander largely without an army. On March 2, 1836, Houston turned 43 years old and celebrated by signing the Texas Declaration of Independence. Happy birthday indeed. Only four days later, the convention received news that the Alamo was being besieged and that its 180-man garrison was in desperate need for soldiers. And not for the last time, Houston urged the Texans to exercise caution, and though it cost the defenders of the Alamos their lives, the members of the convention listened to his wisdom and did not rush to disaster in aiding the massively overwhelmed forces. On the 11th of March, Houston arrived at Gonzales, taking command of what passed for the Army of the Republic at the time. 374 poorly equipped, poorly trained, and poorly supplied recruits. People held out some hope for the Alamo, and while Houston awaited confirmation of the results of the battle, he organized the recruits he had into the 1st Regiment of the Volunteer Army of Texas. Despite the anger and indignation caused by news of the Alamo's fall and the way the defenders were treated by Santa Ana's forces, Houston did not lead his tiny force against the Mexican army directly, despite the demands of many of his troops. Instead, on March 13th, he retreated. Heavy rain fell nearly every day, wearing down the morale of his troops. After four days of travel, the army was near present-day LaGrange and was joined by more troops. When Houston resumed his trek two days later, he had 600 men. On March 26th, Houston and his men were near present-day Columbus and were joined by another 130 men. The next day, they learned of the massacre at Goliad of nearly 400 men which had occurred a week earlier. 
Needless to say, Texan tempers ran high, and most of the men under Houston's command wanted to march against Santa Ana's forces immediately. Again, Houston was wise. He did not succumb to the group opinion as his troops still numbered well under 800 men, and Santa Ana had several thousand at his disposal. Houston resumed the retreat east in what became known as the Runaway Scrape. Houston's army camped in the Brazos on March 29th, and two companies under his command simply refused to retreat any further. Rather than risking further sedition with his men and losing a significant portion of that force, he used the opportunity to perform some rudimentary training of the forces under his command. On April 2nd, he organized the 2nd Regiment and received an additional battalion of regulars into his forces. On April 11th, he ordered all troops along the Brazos to join the main army, ending up with approximately 1,500 men. The next day, he started crossing the Brazos with his forces and turned south. The runaway scrape ended on April 21st, 1836, when Santa Ana finally caught up with Houston and his forces. Houston's caution and patience finally proved wise. In his impatience to end the conflict quickly, Santa Ana had split his army into three separate forces in an attempt to trap the Texans. Rather than facing a force with far superior numbers, the Texans were able to fight a group that was only about half again their size and not as well equipped. Though Santa Ana did not know it until it was too late, Houston had managed to lure them into a trap. Houston controlled the only bridge in the area and had it burned by the men under the command of Deaf Smith. Neither side could easily gain reinforcements or equipment. This was a huge blow to Santa Ana, as he was cut off from most of his men and supplies, while Houston had his entire army at play. On the afternoon of April 21st, Houston's forces approached the enemy camp through tall grass and hidden by a stand of trees. Despite their emotions running high over the Alamo and Goliad, the Texans approached quietly, with only a fife playing a popular tune as a marching song. When they were only a few dozen yards away from the Mexican camp, they charged, shouting, Remember the Alamo! Remember Goliad! Even then, they didn't fire, and they drew within several yards of the Mexican forces before opening fire. Houston's attack couldn't have been timed more perfectly. After chasing the Texian forces for weeks, Santa Ana was overconfident and wasn't expecting to be attacked by a force that had been on the run. Most of the Mexican troops were on siesta at the time, exhausted from building fortifications and the forced marches they'd been put through to catch the Texas rebels. Much of the cavalry was out gathering supplies. Only a few of the troops were ready for the surprise attack. Santa Ana's defensive line quickly collapsed as the Texans attacked. Most of the terrified Mexican soldiers fled, running into the marshes and stream in the area. Houston attempted to enforce restraint among the troops, but they were in no mood to listen many of the fleeing Mexican troops were cut down as they fled. Though the slaughter continued for about an hour, the battle itself was exceptionally short. It lasted only about 18 minutes. When the smoke cleared, the Texans, under Houston's command, won a stunning victory. Approximately 700 Mexican soldiers were killed, another 200 were injured, and 730 were taken prisoner. These included Santa Ana, although they didn't realize that immediately. Sam Houston was no rear-line commander. He took personal command of the infantry, and in the course of the battle had two horses shot out from under him, as well as suffering a gunshot wound to the ankle. He was taken to a tree to have his injured ankle cared for as the Mexican forces surrendered, and it was here that the disguised Santa Ana was eventually presented to him. Santa Ana remained in Houston's custody, and it wasn't until May 14th that the Treaty of Alaska that acknowledged the Republic of Texas as an independent country was signed. While responsible for Santa Ana's defeat, Houston would not be present for the entirety of the negotiations. Houston returned to the United States, where he could receive better medical care for the grievous wound to his ankle he suffered in the battle. 
He returned to Texas just in time for the first presidential election for the Republic of Texas. Houston only declared his candidacy 11 days before the election, but even in a time before the internet and other forms of rapid communication, it was enough to sink Stephen F. Austin's hopes of winning the election. Until Houston's arrival, Austin considered himself the front-runner. But when the results of the September 5th election were announced, Houston won in a landslide. He earned an astounding 79% of the vote. He was inaugurated seven weeks later on October 22nd. Because of the way the Texas Constitution had been written, Houston's first term only lasted two years. One of his primary goals during his first presidency was annexation into the United States, though he eventually abandoned this goal because of the political climate there, largely related to slavery, and because there were other more pressing issues. Austin graciously agreed to become Houston's Secretary of State and threw himself into the job of securing recognition for the new republic. Sadly, Austin worked himself to death just a few months later. The Texas Constitution had no limits to how many times a man could be elected president of the republic, but the president was not allowed to serve back-to-back terms. Additionally, the president and vice president of the Republic of Texas were selected independently. In fact, Houston's vice president during his first term of office was Mirabeau B. Lamar, a latecomer to Texas, but a man who had proven his skill and loyalty to the Republic in the Battle of San Jacinto. However, his position on subjects as diverse as whether or not the nation should remain independent or join the U.S., and the treatment of Native Americans in the fledgling country were as different from Houston's as could be imagined. Texas politics were such that Though there were no political parties, political factions largely split into pro- and anti-Houston camps. Houston's chosen successors, Peter Grayson and James Collinsworth, both died within days of each other, and Lamar, the opposition, was easily elected. Houston himself was elected to the Texas Senate. Because of the differences in opinions on so many topics facing the Republic, many of Houston's policies were reversed during the years Lamar was in office, though Houston largely controlled the nation's purse strings due to his control of the Senate. One of Lamar's executive actions that must have been particularly upsetting to Houston was his violent deportation of the Cherokee living in East Texas, an action that included a pitched battle and numerous deaths on both sides. As proof that the Texas public was voting for men rather than ideals, Houston won the next election, becoming the first and third president of the Republic. Much of Houston's second term, was dedicated to repairing the fiscal problems that the Republic faced and repairing relations with the remaining Native American tribes. This work was necessary to reverse the actions of Lamar, who went out of his way to agitate these tribes and who enacted a number of expensive schemes that only worsened the death that Texas suffered. Houston's second term was also plagued by military conflict, and he had to struggle to keep out of war with Mexico. Despite the Treaty of Velasco, Mexico itself never recognized Texas independence, and they invaded twice in 1842. Internal conflict also demanded his attention, and in 1844, he had to send the Texas militia into the former so-called neutral ground free state in East Texas to quell the regulator-moderator war. He was even forced to go there in person to broker a peace between the two feuding political factions. Though Houston did not push for his goal of annexation, it was not because he didn't believe in its benefits for Texas. Instead, he didn't believe that the U.S. Senate would see the benefits to America, especially because of the delicate balance between Mexico and America and the position of Texas between them. Even more delicate was the balance between slave and free states in the U.S., and this also complicated things. Still, Houston knew that the Texan population supported annexation, and the Republic was slipping deeper and deeper into debt. 
He continued to push, even sending envoys to Washington to help move the process along. Houston also made overtures to the British and French governments that he would be open to alliance or even annexation by either country in exchange for protection from Mexico and forgiveness of debt. Houston even stated that he was open to reconciliation with Mexico if Great Britain mediated and assured the rights of the Anglo-Texans. This action, more than anything else, served to turn the opinion within the U.S. government in favor of annexing Texas. Not everyone wanted Texas, but they certainly didn't want the British or French to have them. Houston would not be in office long enough to see this goal accomplished, though, as his second term ended and he had to wait to run again. The work he did wasn't in vain. His successor, Anson Jones, was a man whose primary goal was always annexation. He managed to get the republic turned into a state within 15 months of being elected. This, of course, abolished the position of president of Texas. Given his track record, it's hard to deny that Houston would have won the next election if there'd been one. When the flag of the republic was lowered for the last time as a sovereign nation, Houston was there to gather it up. Sam Houston would not abandon the land that he loved and continue to serve Texas as a public figure for many years. None can deny the importance he had in the Texas Revolution and the Republic of Texas or how important they both were to his life and legacy. Well, there you go. We ensured his place as a giant statue on I-45. Well, hang on. We're not to that part of the story. We're not there yet. (laughs) Hold hold your horses, The the, the great magic transformation of Sam Houston is not, not time for that yet. No, I mean, the way this story reads is like, you know, Sam Houston is Hercules leading the pack across the great land of Texas, cutting down Mexicans left and right. Well, the way I see it is, is that, you know, so many of the stories of heroes of Texas and just of general Texans is it's a reinvention. And man, I mean, this is, you know, The Empire Strikes Back is the best Star Wars movie. The second <laughs> episode of Sam Houston, to me, is just is rocking right along. I mean, he he's just winning. I mean, he's just dominating and doing great stuff. Like, he's yeah. he's mm-hmm. he's... He's firing on all cylinders. Yeah. If uh, if Stephen F. Austin is officially the father of Texas mm-hmm. due to his position as establishing that first colony, Sam Houston's at least like, you know, the best uncle of Texas or something, the favorite yeah. uncle of Texas that, a, that shepherds them through the hard the hard stuff. Well, it, it what's interesting, he used the word shepherd. I yeah. mean, like he really, it, it, this story reads like something very biblical when you hear the story of Moses or something. He's, he's Moses to Stephen F. Austin's Abraham. Oh, I don't wow. know about oh, I don't know about <laughs> that, but it's good. But he, no, he's 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 wise. He's smart. He says he's not hot headed. He's the only one that keeps all the cool cool heads. I mean, we've talked about the Battle of San Jacinto before, but the the just the overall temperature of Texas was so hot, mm-hmm. but he managed to to lead these men to one decisive battle. Yeah, what yeah. I've find curiously missing from all of this discussion we've had that uh, we've talked about Sam Houston is like what did he make any mistakes or is this his golden period where he could do no wrong this is this is really this really is his golden period other than getting frustrated with things I think to bring it back to the myth the mythos and mythology thing to get into the American mythology he's the George Washington he's the glue that held things together in the worst of times early in the war He's clearly the most po- most qualified person politically and militarily to lead this this whole effort, this whole thing that's coalescing. Uh, he was a governor. He was a military leader. He's a friend of Andrew Jackson. He was a congressman. Uh, and yet the the shopkeepers and farmers that essentially formed the early provisional government said, 
well, we'll make you a general of the regular army, which has like four people. And then, but then the rest of these guys are the volunteers. And then we're going to give this commission to this guy and this commission to that guy. And it was, he basically said, you know what? I can do better work going and talking to my friends and family in the Cherokee and keeping them out of the war. And that's a forgotten piece of the Texas revolution. If the Texans had had to fight, because the Mexicans made overtures to the Cherokee, if they had had to fight the Mexican Santa Ana and the Cherokee at the same time, there would be no Republic of Texas. There's historical precedence for people really rising to the occasion. And also, I think if you've seen, you know, Eminem's Eight Mile movie, this is your moment. You know, it's the part of every sports movie. You go, you know, this guy's had so much hardship, so much trials. Uh, he's, he's learned so much along the way that when it's time to score the touchdown in the really big game, this is the best mm-hmm. moment of the film. This, this is when it all kind of comes together for him. And that's what his life, I think, had been was, is he'd been someone special that had not really been able to hit his stride. Mm-hmm. I think about like the political conflicts that he had as being a Jack, you know, being Andrew Jackson's guy in Washington, you know, or his trouble in Tennessee or dealing with, and then his experience with the Indians, all of that comes together and sets the table. Mm-hmm. I think if you ask a failure though, and I wonder about this is, is that after the war that, you know, he had somebody like Lamar on his heels the loss of Collingsworth and Grayson. And he just didn't have, he had a large political rival that spent so much effort undoing Mm -hmm. everything he built in those two years. That'd probably be his main failing in his president of Texas. Well, but I don't know if you can really call that a failure for him because that was the way the Constitution was written. It's like he didn't didn't have any power to do anything there. He just, he didn't have a, he didn't have a good number two in the wings to take over. They both died. Right. Well, all three of them, because Austin probably. Oh yeah, that's true. Austin too was another one. Um, The funny thing that we don't talk about in the story is that um, when Lamar was inaugurated, Houston spoke before then, and he spoke for like two hours, just extemporaneously. And it made Lamar so incensed that he just handed his speech to his aide and left. And his his aide read the speech. So he was he was constantly he was fighting with Lamar. And you know, the fights in the Senate apparently, according to all the records, were were just knockdown drag out over over the purse strings that make our fights between the president and the Senate look like nothing. Well, the other interesting thing is on for his Second inauguration, he had, I guess, a, a, there's a hat that still exists that he had part of this, like, green, oh, yeah. magnificent, foppish suit, like, European yeah. style. It's very elaborate suit he was going to wear to the inauguration. And, and there's a whole interesting set of stories around the inauguration being in Austin or being in Washington on the Brazos. And he re- there was all of this, like, the, those two just went at it. Yeah like an old oh, like yeah. married they, couple. They just, they yeah. fought and fought and fought. And you just got, my God, like L- Lamar had the capital moved from Houston, from the t- from the new town of Houston to the new town of Austin on the prairie in the middle of Camp Comancheria, just to spite to Houston. Spite Houston. <laughs> and, so, well, and then we talked about, we did an episode on the Santa Fe expedition. We called it, it seemed like a good idea at the time. We didn't talk about in the episode was that Houston controlled the purse strings. He was the one who engineered blocking funding for that. And Lamar ended up having to like basically pilfer the Texas treasury and pay for it on his own to send those, those men off to die. Well, I'll say it. I've said it a hundred times on this show. I'll say it again. If Sam Houston thinks something is a bad idea, 
Guess what, folks? It's a bad idea. And history has proved him right. Most likely. I, Most likely. I, I agree with what Scott said earlier about it. It's like keeping the army together for this one moment. And you said it too. Kind of like he knew that he had they had they had one shot. And where it was going to be depended on really picking the right ground. There's a there's a there's a basically a, a historical marker in Waller, which is on the Brazos River just east of Houston, where it's a farm where basically the soldiers basically said we're not. It was a crossroads. We're not going further east. We're going south. And he essentially said, "Okay, this is a good enough place to go and turn south." What I want to know is at the Battle of San Jacinto, why they didn't just hole up in that big tower and oh, yeah. wait it out. Oh, just pick them off, American sniper style. Well, they should have been on the battleship because then, oh, then yeah. that would have been. That they should have used care the battleship. Wait, it's a cool. We talk. <laughs> <laughs> Fire the guns, Ridley. <laughs> the, they, you know, it, it was a cool. I remember we talked about the Battle of San Jacinto, and it's kind of probably the culmination of everything of getting, mm. getting to that point and being there. There's a lot of interesting parts of the story of, you know, the Mexican army almost got them here and there. You know, it sounds mm-hmm. like a scrape of, well, they ran away and they ran behind them, but they were very close. They were with, yeah. they they passed like ships in the night at time in, in the mm-hmm. wilderness. Yeah. Well, I mean, in those days, there weren't mechanized troop transports or anything like that. They're mostly on foot. So just being a few miles away might as well have been on the other side of the ocean. You yeah. walk around on somebody's farm or out in some sort of brush country in in Texas, and you go, I don't know how <laughs> anybody did this on horse with no roads. He, Houston was a polarizing figure, though, too. He 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 didn't, he wasn't perfect. Who isn't, who isn't a right. great figure of his, he, isn't polarizing. He actually, yeah, he was, he was very much on the opposite end of the spectrum of most Texans on the, on the issue of the, the Native Americans, and most Americans at the time. But he actually had a, he was challenged repeatedly to duels and he had a standard response. <laughs> and he said his response, so when you're challenged in the, those days, when you were challenged to a duel, if I said, Mike, I challenge you to, do, to a duel, if you accepted, you got to pick the weapons in the place of the duel. And so, and how the duel went forward. So if I challenge you and you said, well, we'll fight with swords or we'll fight with pistols at 50 paces. Sam Houston's response was, Horse pistols or shotguns at five paces, which basically is self-assured suicide. Yeah, because what is a horse pistol? A, a gigantic pistol that shoots buckshot. Well, I would challenge you <laughs> to a duel with pistols at 50 yards, but I would also say uh, you're not allowed to wear your glasses or contact lenses. <laughs> right. But if you go, if you're at five paces, yeah. you're going to turn around it's... and kill each other. So he never had anybody take him up on the offer. So I'll ask this of everybody. Sam Houston, great president? Or greatest president? <laughs> I'm going to go greatest president. It's pretty great. And I have to say that it's another one of those moments in Texas history that sounds like it was made up for a movie, is the whole idea of Sam Houston being there to take down the flag as uh-huh. Texas ceased to be a republic and became a state. It's like that is a, a Texas movie moment yeah. that uh, doesn't seem like it could be genuine, Stand, but it is. Standing next to the log cabin capital. <laughs> That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you. So like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. If you'd like to support the show financially, go to patreon.com slash Texas Podcast. 
We'd like to give a big shout out to our good friend James Abendroth for helping us research and write today's episode. And you can find his fiction writing and games at blackguardpress.com. You can follow us individually too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two ends. And I'm Scotticus. So you like the show? Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. Tell everyone you meet. And go leave a review on iTunes. That helps people discover the show, just like you. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas Texas wants you anyway. anyway.